0: Welcome to Spot on the Couch, a show about navigating the rapidly changing world around us while focusing on important cultural, political, and social moments.
1: In a world where you can often feel out of place, there's always a spot for you here. On On our our couch. couch! I'm Yaz. I'm Tat. And I'm Sav. So let's get into it. Oh, it's so good to be back. Yeah. Um, so welcome back, friends, and more friends. Um, it's really weird that we're doing a live recording, because usually it's just, like, in my room, all three of us on my bed, like, <laughs> doing the struggle that we did here with the tech for, like, four more hours. Yeah, weird, really but, yeah, so this is, this is an upgrade. So thank you for being here with us. It's really weird that we got permission to do this, and I want to thank the Women in Gender Studies Course Union for bringing this idea to us, especially Robin Martin and Ashley Gold. Um So thanks, folks. Uh, you have way too much faith in us, but hopefully we can live up to it, and we appreciate the opportunity nonetheless. Yeah,
0: fake it till you make it, right? Um, <laughs> yeah, we wanted to apologize to everybody for being MIA for a little bit, life got in the way as usual. Um, but we're trying to be a lot better about it in the future and like, hopefully get some more ideas rolling. Um, yeah, so it's cool to be here right now doing this live recording at U of T and the Women and Genders, uh, Gender Study uh, Institute. So thanks so much again to the department and you guys, the Student Union, for helping us get this going
2: together. Mm-hmm. yeah I'll also say thank you once more <laughs> just because <laughs> so we're thanks. really grateful I know it's like yeah. annoying to be like thanks 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 but it's really cool to be here like everyone already said um and we're super excited to have this space and share it with everyone um especially with our super cool guests I'm yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so stoked to talk to you today um Saf could you actually uh say a little bit about
1: how this episode and guests
2: actually came about
1: uh sure so in my third year at U of T, uh, which was last year, I took a really sick <laughs> course offered by the WGS department, Women and Gender Studies, called Ghosts and Haunted Houses. It's a seminar course, and it really rocked my world. I always love horror. I love the genre. It's just really interesting, especially as somebody who occupies a lot of marginalized identities. I sort of always found myself drawn to things that were weirder. Mm-hmm. Um, but. Getting back to the course, it was really provoking, uh, thought-provoking and interesting and really fun. And I was like, oh, school can be fun. Who would have thought? Um, And no one's paying me to say that. I'm paying the university to be here, actually. (laughs) But the course was taught by one of my favorite professors, Dr. Uh, S. Trimble, and they're a special guest today. Uh, They also go by Trimble and T, and so we're going to introduce our guest now.
0: Yeah, so Trimble is a writer and pop culture critic who teaches at the Women and Gender Studies Institute at the University of Toronto. She's the author of Undead Ends, Stories of Apocalypse, Uh, um, she's also a contributing author to Inside Pilgrim's Castle, Dikey Ghosts, Feminist Monsters, and Other Lesbian Hauntings, and one of this year's Bitch Media Writing Fellows, um, Summer 2020. Uh, Trimble loves dogs, NBA basketball, horror movies, and Things That Go Bump in the Night.
3: Yeah. yeah. I just heard that things that go bump in the night and I was like, That's not quite what I meant, but okay Thanks for having me uh, I'm super, super excited to be here um, This is my first podcast yeah. so, <laughs> oh, Honored um, since, you, since other than the live audience your listeners can't see me um, I'll identify as a white, queer, non-binary person who lives, works, and plays on contested land as we just heard about um, my thinking about horror and apocalypse is really shaped by this, so on the one hand I sort of understand uh, myself as, because of my whiteness being implicated in formations and structures, that from uh, POC perspectives are uh, horrifying, to say the least, mm-hmm. um, and then alongside of that also because I'm a gender non-conforming queer person, I also have these experiences in which, um, everyday spaces and, and encounters can suddenly become really anxiety-inducing mm-hmm. and horrifying. Mm-hmm. Um, public washrooms, for one, are, for me, are like really scary. Mm-hmm. Um, also, baby showers. Mm-hmm. I can't even handle <laughs> yeah. anything. Mm-hmm. The showers are just not, yeah. they're not for me. Yeah. That, I guess that's my introduction. I stop at baby showers. <laughs> Relatable. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, definitely. Super
2: fair. Yeah, thank you for being here again, T. To- uh, we're super stoked, like we said, especially meeting uh, you at the book launch for Kill- Inside Killjoy's Castle, which was so great. Um, I really loved and read your uh, featured essay. Um, and yeah, both books are v- both bodies of work um, that center these themes of queering horror, uh, feminist hauntings, and what queer, trans, BIPOC um, bodies could look like in an apocalyptic world. Um, And I know I don't, like, just speak for myself when I say uh, these themes are fantastical and really demystify um, common tropes found within horror. Uh, As a recent climate organizer, I've, like, continuously come across this concept of, like, climate apocalypse, and I'm curious about how horror and apocalypse first came um, this object of interest for you and why uh, you have taken the approaches and lenses that you have to look into this idea of apocalypse? Uh,
3: so I think my interest, my fascination with mm. apocalyptic storytelling mm. uh, really goes back to uh, a story that I share in the preface to the book, um, which is a story about my family in the lead up to Y2K. Mm. Yeah. Um, so a story about a white family in Mississauga, Um, And I I should say before I start that I I always feel uneasy about telling this story because it feels like my parents can come across as total caricatures, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, like a feminist and a prepper gearing up for Y2K sounds Mm. like a really bad joke. (laughs) Um, And so, but I, I, so I say that, you know, my parents are three dimensional, complicated people who I care about a great deal. Mom and dad, if you're listening, um, this is one of those things where like, we kind of all sound a little weird, and you know that that's mostly a compliment in my world, so um, we'll be weird together. Uh, but basically, you know, in 1999, I was 18, I was finishing high school, and um, if you're too young to remember Y2K, it was like you know, everyone was really worried about massive disruption, right? So our network society, um, there was a millennial fever was in the air because it was a rollover into the year 2000. And there were lots of concerns that there would be major sort of technological problems. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as I was finishing high school, uh, my dad began preparing for potential disruption. And so my house in Mississauga was being filled with, like cans of tuna and craft dinner and bottled water, um, and there were big barrels of gasoline being stored out behind the house, which was very nerve-wracking. Um, and so, but for, from my dad's point of view, these were, this was about security, right? This was about, and my parents also run a security company. Like, they, 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 they install home alarm systems. Wow. We love it. Yes, all the layers. Um, and so, so my parents, you know, from my dad's point of view, this was security, this was, the way to like ride out the coming storm kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, my mom did not share his opinion that the end of the world was coming, but um, she was taking a much more skeptical approach, and so she was walking around the house asking questions like, you know, what what are we gonna do with all this stuff if our neighbors don't have anything? Mm-hmm. And what about our little my little old aunties who live at Miss, in Mimico all by themselves? Um, and And she was also asking more existentially, if everything goes to shit, yeah. do we really want to be around? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's always my thought. <laughs> <top. level. laughs> <laughs> I was like, yeah. Yeah, I could be the one totally, the one. <laughs> and like that—that that question really stayed with me. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah, And so you know, it was two very, very different ways of looking at mm-hmm. apocalypse, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that—that that became that, thats my inheritance. Is to essentially sort of look at these things from these two really different angles. Um, and, and one angle sees it as the condition of possibility of like social renewal, and one angle sees it as um, something that will deepen the vulnerability of people who are already vulnerable, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, that idea that there are multiple ways of seeing the apocalypse kind of translated into the way that I see apocalypse films. Mm-hmm. Um, and that really crystallized for me, I think I was sort of telling you all before, right, it really crystallized for me when I would watch, you know the crowd scene in an apocalypse film, like when everyone's panicking and they're running and, you know, there's quarantine happening or Godzilla's foot is coming down and and smacking like 12 people at once. Mm. And I just had this moment watching one of these movies where I was like, I am not a hero. I am one of those people who just got (laughs) destroyed on the sidelines in the first three minutes of the movie. That's me, in, out, done. Mm -hmm. And so it really made me sort of ask some questions about how do we imagine apocalypses and how are our imaginings shaped in such a way that it makes it kind of common sense that only certain kinds of people will survive mm-hmm. and that the rest of us are just fucked, mm-hmm. right? And so um, that's sort of where, that's where the project took off from. Yeah, definitely. Like, I
0: really relate to that idea of like, seeing these stories and not, like, not relating to the main characters like that and feeling like one of the forgotten characters and, like, even in, like, everyday life today, um, looking into the future, sometimes it's, like, especially in, like, the political and social climate we live in now, like, it feels like there's not a place for us, like, for me, for people like us, Mm -hmm. and so there's always those, that perspective of, like, this is horrible, like, do I even want to be here, do I even want to participate, like, is there something I can see for myself that's great in the future, but, um yeah so like I, I read um, your, the intro to your book and like I really related to that story and um, something else I observed when reading undead ends and um, is that in the course of analyzing the films that um, that you do you sort of retell the story each like in each film so this made me think about story as a method um, can you talk about how you use story storytelling in your academic work and also why you take the specific approach?
3: for sure I, I think part of it came from a place of frustration um, which is that I I often read work in cultural studies or literary studies or film studies, um, and I'm not just throwing all those fields under the bus, Like I have a lot of respect for them, um, but sometimes I would read things that would sort of take up a film or a novel in a way that just felt like that thing was just an example that was going to prove the argument and there wasn't really a deep engagement with the actual storytelling, the details, the nuances, um, to really test out the argument in all of its complexity. And so one of the things I really wanted to do was actually do some analysis in the course of retelling the stories, right, to sort of, to actually deal with their details and their little nitty-gritty moments where things get kind of weird, and to actually bring those out and think with them. Mm -hmm. The background of that approach, I think, also is that um, my partner works in TV. And so um, I live, I have a cultural producer in the house. <laughs> I live with yeah. somebody who, who makes media. Yeah. And um, this gives me a really like everyday first hand view of the hours of labor that go into it, the collective nature of it, it's very collaborative, right? Mm-hmm. Um, all of the constraints and compromises that people make in order to get something made. Yeah. Um, there's so many voices coming to the table, and, and that's, even for really powerful filmmakers, that's what happens, right? You get yeah. uh, endings that get rejected by test audiences, as happened in a number of the films that I talk about in the mm-hmm. book. Um, you know, there are all these Casting choices that get mixed by broadcasters and producers, like all these things, really can affect how a story happens. Mm -hmm. But I also then, because I know that all those steps and details, I'm kind of interested in. You know, even if an ending gets mixed, the traces of the story that were leading to that ending are often still there. Mm -hmm. And so, if that's if you read closely, you can probably find them, right? And that becomes a space I think of creative leverage. Um, that as a critic I want to be someone who's analyzing things carefully but also creatively in, mm-hmm. in, in an interesting way, right? And it's also, I think, it's also about my history as a reader or a viewer. Um, I was a white girl in the 1980s when like uh, most of the boys were having these like cinematic adventures on screen and the girls yeah. were just like on the side doing fuck all. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then I was a queer kid in the 90s when, you know, there wasn't a ton of queer representation. there certainly wasn't very much lesbian representation. and so like lots of us who don't see ourselves every day in mainstream media, I learned to read creatively, um, I learned to find like queer subtext whether there were none, or you know to identify in various ways with different characters, to look at the characters who are on the margins and think about what the whole world looked like from their point of view. Um, mm-hmm. Jose Munoz, uh, the queer theorist Jose Munoz talks about this as disidentification, mm. which is that process where we we sort of take um, all of the the ways that like a mainstream story operates and use that as raw material for remaking it from within in our oh. own image somehow, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, that sort of, that's a like, rough and ready version of what he's talking about adapted to storytelling, but I just realized that that's as that's a skill I have from many years of experience. It's valuable, mm-hmm. and so I wanted to put it to work.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: And I put it to work in my teaching, too, I hope.
1: Yeah, wow, that was really illuminating. Um, going off of Tat's question about Soria's method and the answer that you just provided, which is so thought-provoking, um, something that I'm remembering from lecture in Ghosts and Haunted Houses was how you sort of look at these um, narratives in the genre of horror and apocalypse, even if they aren't outrightly sort of advocating for this kind of analysis or a deeper analysis of patriarchal structures, white supremacist structures, etc., mm-hmm. how you can sort of look at them, if you read closely, as this kind of unraveling or undoing of the white nuclear family structure. So if you could maybe mm-hmm. speak about that a little bit more, because that was one of my favorite takeaways from the chorus. It's awesome. like, wow. That's so
3: affirming. Um, for sure. So there's a film critic um, named Robin Wood who, back in the 70s and 80s, used to teach at York, actually. Um, he proposed a basic formula for the horror film, which was normality is threatened by the monster. And okay. that, it, you know, that's just like, that works for almost any horror film, American horror film, sorry, mm-hmm. specifically. Mm. Um, and he, he said that the emblem of normality in these films tends to be the white heteropatriarchal family and the various institutions that support it, right? Mm. Um, and so in a more recent article, A Glossary of Haunting, uh, Eve Tuck and C. Ree say some similar things, right, where they talk about um, mainstream American horror films as operating according to like, almost a mathematical formula, right, where you have an innocent white family who moves into that weirdly cheap house, Mm -hmm. and then the dog won't go in, and they go in anyway, and that's never a good sign, when the dog won't go in, right? Um, But then they sort of talk about just how then it becomes about finding out where the phantom came from, or where the monster came from, so that you can quiet them down or get rid of them, and then normality can be, like, reasserted, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so I became really interested in thinking about how that operates in horror films and many of them do operate with that formula. Um, but then I also became really interested in those moments where that, those ideological investments are, they threaten not to quite hold up, mm-hmm. right? Like there's those moments where something else threatens to come through. And so one of my favorite, just to give an example, one of my favorite like subgenres for this is the slasher film. Mm-hmm. Do any yeah. of you like slasher? Can I you tell me, like, what, like, in a nutshell, what is a slasher film? There's a killer on the loose. Yeah. <laughs> go and attack, like kill everybody. No,
0: no exceptions. Yeah.
3: There's a killer on the loose, and it's usually a group of teens. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. yeah.
0: In, like, in yeah. the woods, usually. In the, yeah. Often in yeah. the woods. And the character the first to go. And then, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and Absolutely. then, like the
1: really feminine, like screaming girl. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's yeah. What I mean. So,
3: <laughs> so as a child of the '80s and '90s, like I grew up with. Uh, Freddy Krueger and Michael Myers and those kinds of things, and I totally watched them way too young, but I did it anyway. Um, And I was really fascinated by the figure of the final girl, right? Which is a term coined by um, film critic Carol Clover in a 1992 book, which still has my favorite, almost, I think my favorite title for an academic book, Men, Women, and Chainsaws. (laughs) Um, So the final girl, right, is the one who survives the massacre, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And the final girl can skew super conservative. Um, Mm. She's historically been a white, middle-class virgin, (laughs) so it's as if her purity earns her a future, right? Um, Unlike her sexually promiscuous friends, um, she is the good white girl who wins out at the end of the movie. Mm. Um, And I think, you know, that's a reading that's been offered many times, and it's a really valid reading of the final girl. But every time I watched those movies, I couldn't help but notice that the final girl is failed by every man in her life Mm -hmm. across the board, right? So um, I'm thinking of one of my favorites and one of the Most traumatic memories, but also like the one that stays with me forever that I appreciate is like my first viewing of A Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah. (laughs) Um, You know, where there's this Freddy Krueger is stalking teens through their dreams, which is like a horrifying premise. Um, But in Nightmare on Elm Street, the final girl is Nancy. Nancy has a plan to stop Freddy, but she needs her boyfriend and her dad to help her out. Her boyfriend, in spite of all the warnings she gives him, falls asleep and dies, right? <laughs> it's a young Johnny Depp, by the way, very, very young Johnny Depp. Mm-hmm. Um, and then her dad is a cop, and he doesn't believe her. And so he just like leaves her in the house, and in fact, locks everything up so that she's actually trapped inside the house where she's trapped, as opposed to being able to flee. Yes. Right? So, and the same thing sort of happens to, you know, Laurie Strode in Halloween, right? Like, she goes running through the neighborhood looking for help, and all of her neighbors think she's pranking, and so they close the doors in her yeah. face. And so the final girl is constantly screwed mm-hmm. by all the people who are supposed to help her out, mm-hmm. which to me just made me go, well, what happens to the final girl after the movie's over? Mm-hmm. Like, what kind of person does she become? Because she's gotta be pretty alienated mm-hmm. from all of the like contracts and the ways, like the, the bargains we make, right? Um, the, the, the bargain that upholds the white patriarchal family is the idea that good white girls are, they're good and they exchange, their like obedience for protection and provision from men, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And the final girl is basically discovering that being a good girl is not gonna save her, mm-hmm. and that in fact being a badass is is probably gonna save her. Mm-hmm, right? yeah. And so I just, uh, that really was kind of a point for me where I was like, huh, what can we do with these films, right? And the new Halloween from 2018, if I don't know if anyone saw it, but the new Halloween really picks that up, mm-hmm. right? It gives you 40 years later, the final girl is all grown up and she's graying and she's traumatized and she's a prepper who's totally alienated from her family because no one believes her again. Right? And so there's a real kind of rethinking the final girl as a kind of survivor, um, I think, changes that idea that she won because of her purity. right? Like it it kind of undercuts that idea in a particular way mm-hmm. that I think is just worth kind of playing with a little bit more.
0: Mm. That, that yeah. all kind of reminded me of like you know the final girl becoming the badass like the Resident Evil movies and Neil Jovovich. Like, yeah, yeah. I I don't do horror like I'm not a fan like I like I don't like scary movies. Yep, but definitely the Resident Evil movies were something I really gravitated gravitated toward because yeah. of that.
3: And My mom and I went to see like every Resident Evil release <laughs> in the
0: theater, <laughs> every one. Yeah, yeah, I wish I like knew about
3: the series when it was out like.
1: Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know we were just talking about this idea of the final girl, which I've always found fascinating, but um, sort of in lieu of last night's like Oscar win at Parasite, Mm. which is this like sort of um, horror, comedy, drama, like critique on class uh, class relations that was written and directed by Bong Joon, the South Korean director, took all the Oscars. Mm. And so I think... I feel like we're in, hopefully also not, we're in like this weird new age yeah. of like the horror genre where like Tat was mentioning and Yaz was mentioning these sort of like social and political climates that we're in are really sort of like creating a rupture in these narratives that we've seen for so long, mm-hmm. instead of having to like always read between the lines of things that seem yeah. very like Hegemonic. I think there's a lot of creators who are starting to question that, mm-hmm. uh, which absolutely. is really interesting to see. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Oh yeah, um, yeah. Just like going off of that. Um, sorry. Like another thing that I noticed when reading your book was that how you constantly like point out in apocalypse stories um, how like pop like yeah sorry how apocalypse uh, stories in pop culture they kind of like reveal. Um, they narrate and reveal flaws in how Western, the Western world operates under neo- neoliberalism, and it, you draw parallels between the perspectives in the stories and perspectives in histories of like colonizers and and the others like us um, that they exact their will on. But you also hint at the possibility of the end of man. So like going back to what Tal was t- saying about like um, this kind of shift in paradigm, where like we're seeing these new narratives come out. Um, like as much as the end of man is very enticing, I can't help but feel that it doesn't seem possible—at least like in our lifetime or like in the foreseeable future. But mm-hmm. um, considering the very like, yeah, considering the very polarized uh, political and social climate we live in. But um, like with your take on the book and like looking at storytelling, um, how do you think it can influence influence generations to come to kind of be able to see that future and like create that? Um, Yeah, like how do you like how can storytelling influence generations to come to subscribe to a future that can kind of pull everyone together in a we that where everyone wins and everybody feels included? Mm -hmm. And I know it's like it seems like a very like abstract kind of question, but like is is that future even possible? Like.
3: Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a big question. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, I think so maybe uh, one way of approaching it is to take a step back and say, so for people, for your listeners who don't know, right, um, the concept of man and therefore after man or the end of man mm-hmm. um, comes from the work of Sylvia Winter, who is really important in the history of black feminist thought. Um, and so Winter, Winter in a nutshell, Um, Winter makes the argument that our sort of current modern capitalist world is premised on what she calls the inventions of man. Mm. So it's a um, white, heteropatriarchal, European, bourgeois, masculinist kind of version of what it means to be human. Um, Sorry. (laughs) um, And so what Winter argues is that this version of humanness, the story of what it means to be human has been taking shape for centuries. It goes all the way back to the Renaissance, mm-hmm. um, and it's, it's a story that is very particular to like Western European ways of thinking and knowing the world, but that passes itself off as universal. Mm-hmm. So man overrepresents itself as a figure, as if it were the human, when in fact it's just, it's one genre of the human. So that's all like Winter's language, right? Yeah. Um, And so there's a couple of things that give me hope in Winter's thinking, right? Other than the fact that she's amazing and covers like 500 years of history in an aside within a sentence. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, you know. Um, But there's two things that give me hope. So one is that if the, if If man has been a kind of ongoing invention, so this current neoliberal moment is like one iteration, right? Mm -hmm. Um, That defines humanness in terms of economic productivity, self sufficiency, um, you know, we don't need other people, we're not responsible for other people, and we just have to relentlessly accumulate everything to survive, right? Um, If that is something that has been unfolding for centuries, then what that also means is that, that we also have centuries of revolt and resistance and rebellion to draw on, right, Mm -hmm. that every, with all histories of dispossession and violence there are always also histories of revolt and reinvention and rebellion, right, and so one of the things I try to do as a teacher is to like foreground those histories. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the other part for me that's really like captivating about Winter is that she offers a new take, she says, you know, we don't have to understand the human as man. We need to push back against that. Um, And so she says, I propose an understanding of the human as storyteller. And what that means is that we're not just biological beings that have to like relentlessly accumulate in order to stave off death. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, We are biological beings that tell stories about what we are. Mm -hmm. And stories are revisable. So we can change the stories that we tell um, and that can in turn have an impact on who we understand as human and therefore who we understand as part of our we. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? And so I think that idea like, that storytelling is actually um, not just like a superficial layer to the current formation, it's, it's a key part of it. Mm-hmm. And that storytelling can become a site where we actually reimagine humanness and therefore reimagine collectivity and reimagine our futures. And I think this moment that that Sav was talking about in terms of like the horror genre mm-hmm. is an interesting one in terms of storytellers doing some of that work, mm-hmm. because this is a moment where, not just in horror but like broadly speaking, we're all arguing in a sense about what we should fear, what and who we should fear, mm-hmm. um, where danger lies, like all that kind of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And we're arguing about like where violence starts and. Um, all of those things are—they're ha- happening in social movements like Me Too. They're happening in Black Lives Matter. Like they're happening all over the place. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, ho- that is the terrain of horror, right? Is the question around what we—you know—where does fear come from? Where does violence come from? All those things. Mm-hmm. And so, it isn't any coincidence I think that right now the genre is shape shifting, mm-hmm. right? Because it's—it's it's metabolizing a larger kind of cultural context where these—this is now a terrain of struggle. It's no longer a given. That you know, the the good future looks like the pa- hetero-patriarchal white family, yeah. right? Yeah. And so I think that um, that change in the genre points to like larger cultural changes that are happening. That I think, I think we have reason to be hopeful. But yes, yeah. mm-hmm. the end of man. Yeah. is a long-term project. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. No,
0: but like after reading like parts of your book, like. Because I, I was always in that mind frame of like, oh, like it seems like there's no hope, like even like with everything going on, like the movements and, you know, the pushes that people are having, mm-hmm. are making, um, it feels like it's so it's still so far away. But after reading your book, like, it definitely sparked like a lot of hope and like a lot of faith in like the stories that we are telling, the stories that we are seeing today. So like, yeah.
2: That's one of the nicest compliments I've ever had. Thank you. Yeah, I'm just like I'm glad. Um, Yeah, it's amazing. No, I love I loved it. My work is done. (laughs) Podcast over. We're done. Yeah, yeah, I think for me that raises questions. Uh, I've been really into Adrian Marie Brown recently, uh, reading her works. And she has a book called Emergent Strategies, which I think everyone should read. Also, Pleasure Activism. Just plugging these books because they're like, they change your life. Um, But she kind of talks about this idea that for so long, uh, like transformative justice and social justice have been fighting for this like utopia, dystopia, or this utopian. I guess it's a utopian world. Um, but a utopia can't exist without a dystopia. Mm. And that really, really shapes the way that I have been thinking through world building and how to, mm. like, think about, like, apocalypse and everything because she really makes a really wonderful point about the fact that, there are people right now, aka billionaires, right, who are living in a utopia because they have that utopian access in their world. And that utopia is being threatened because there is such mass dystopia. Um, so, yeah, I think it's really interesting when we're thinking about things like world building um, and apocalypse, the these traditional... Um, justice fights and these traditional narratives, especially since apocalypse is defined as the complete or final destruction of the world um, in this biblical revelation sense or as an event involving destruction or damage on an awesome or catastrophic scale. (laughs) So in that way um, it sort of sidesteps or subverts the common definitions of what it means. So for me you've really highlighted and made me think about what if abolitionists Decolonial and sort of like radical justice work, we might actually be fighting for an apocalypse in some regard. Um, this apocalypse of the current hegemonic structures and systems such as colonialism, white supremacy, um, capitalism, cis heteronormativity, etc. All these, <laughs> these huge structures that shape yeah. our world. Um, so, this reimagining of the apocalypse to an extent by finding the positive connotations within it. Um, instead of, let's say, the traditional negative connotations that the end of the world is coming for, the, but that end of the world is through the narrative of a like cis heterosexual white rich man, right? Um, so could we then say that the revolution or the resistance is an apocalypse for those who hold power and the elites? You know, absolutely. I think I think
3: <laughs> that whether we see upheaval mm. as apocalyptic or revolutionary. Mm. Depends on perspective, yeah. right? And yeah. um, it's connected to the question of what exactly we see as ending, mm-hmm. and and to put it sort of plainly, um, how well served we've been by the status quo, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so, and I think that sort of instability and in the notion of apocalypse is like it's baked right into the terms history and its meanings, right? As you're sort of alluding. Mm-hmm. Um, so apocalypse actually, uh, apocalypse comes from the Greek word apocalypsis, which is usually translated into English as unveiling mm. or revelation. So hence the book of Revelations. Um, so there's a cultural studies guy named James Berger who says that, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but in order for an event to be properly apocalyptic, mm. um, it, it can't just be about something coming to an end. It also has to reveal a fundamental truth Mm-hmm. about the thing that's ending, mm-hmm. right? And so for me, that's often about exposing like the violent structures that underpin the thing, right? The the, the sort of current shape of the world. Um, some apocalypse stories, I think, try to like sidestep that, mm-hmm. right? mainstream popular apocalypses, mm-hmm. really try to sidestep it by inviting us to kind of reinvest in a really familiar narrative or a really familiar hero mm-hmm. yeah. or a really familiar formation of the world, yeah, right? Yeah, and yeah. They, they kind of... Those ones I think are organized by the assumption, they sort of take for granted that we will all mourn <laughs> the end of the world as we know it right mm-hmm. um, So I try in my book and in my work in general and in my thinking, I really try not to take that we for granted yeah. the end of the world as we know it yeah. um, And you know we all experience the world differently and that's like that's partly about identity, but that's not the whole story right yeah. um, And so those of us who have experienced like the violence and the inhospitality of the world as it is um, are going to at least be at least be ambivalent about its ending, mm. right? We're going to at least feel a couple of ways about it, yeah. um, and and probably even hopeful, mm-hmm. right? Probably even seeing it as opening up space to imagine and wonder and think about and be curious about what the world could look like mm-hmm. in a different formation. Yeah, um, and there's a whole history of that kind of point counterpoint way of seeing the apocalypse. And so a really good example is the Haitian Revolution,
0: mm-hmm. right?
3: So, <laughs> so in the 18th century, right, an organized slave revolt in the French colony of Saint-Domingue um, you know, is, is narrated from the European perspective in apocalyptic terms. It's about the, the uprising of, of slaves. It's about the massacres of white planters. It's about the burning of the cane fields it 's a catastrophe from the European perspective France loses its most lucrative colonial holding it's like Silicon Valley right it just disappears um, but obviously from from another perspective, this is revolution right this is the establishment of the first Black Republic in Haiti um, this is free, this is about what Robin Kelly calls freedom dreams mm-hmm. right it's about um, it's about the end of colonialism and white supremacy mm-hmm. and all those structures. Mm-hmm. And so I think, and I think actually that, that so that's a historical example, but I actually think that we see traces of that kind of struggle over how to see apocalypse versus revolution mm-hmm. today all the time, right? So the kinds of you know, protests that you were talking about, um, you know, we live in a time that we're prone to sort of criminalizing dissent mm-hmm. and protests. Um, and so I think when, when marginalized people, especially people of color, take to the streets to protest something, um, you can really see the way that it can get start to circulate in popular media as a kind of apocalyptic event, right? Mm-hmm. Especially if it's an event where you end up with um, anything like looted stores or burning cars, if it's a burning police car, especially, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Those, kind, those things are on a loop all the time to present this as, literally, it's like a disturbance in the streets that threatens to end the world as we know it, Mm -hmm. right? Um, But obviously, so in that context, I think, you know, I see it as my job as a teacher, but also as, you know, a writer and a cultural studies critic to offer what, in another context, Judith Butler has called an aggressive Mm counter-reading, right, that what is happening is about exposing systemic and structural violence, and you have to look past the burning police car to see that. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, you know, at the end of the day, from some perspectives, apocalypse has been unfolding for centuries, right? So, in this part of the world, right, people whose lands and bodies were stolen in the wake of 1492, apocalypse has been ongoing mm-hmm. for all this time. And so, I think, you know, that sort of just really got me thinking about how we understand like, the apocalyptic timeline. Mm-hmm. So a mainstream apocalypse film is presented as there's this disaster, and then the beginning of post-apocalyptic time happens mm-hmm. after the disaster. And I just started thinking, because of you know, all that reading, and like, black feminist thought and indigenous studies, and I just started thinking like, well, from certain perspectives, actually that disaster marks the end of post-apocalyptic time, mm-hmm. not the beginning. Mm-hmm right because potentially something new can take shape here mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so that just that's the thing that I tried to yeah. bring into the book but I think it's also important to think about in terms of like everyday representations mm-hmm. of protests yeah. yeah yeah
2: no you really brought up a really good point of like again going back to Adrian Marie Brown who's like apparently the only person <laughs> I can think of right now but um, <laughs> she just talks about the idea of like slow violence mm-hmm. and how Um, Like you just mentioned, like that apocalypse, we're always thinking about it through this like catastrophe leading to this like liminal time of like battling that apocalypse. But how, yeah, I just wanted to comment that yeah, that that apocalypse can definitely look like a slow violence if you're if you're looking at it from that perspective that you just brought up. So yeah, just a comment. Yeah, yeah, that was really important.
1: that conversation really—I always find myself blown away by the opportunity that apocalypse cinema, and literature, and sort of critical analysis has for this sort of reimagining and the radical like hope. I think it gives us a lot of radical hope. At least it gives me that instead of that sort of. Um, you know your your chest drops. And you're like, this is the end of the world as we know it. It's more like, oh, thank God, this is the end of the world as we know it. <laughs> um, which is especially like, especially in relation to the way in which the intersections of identity, specifically for those of us who embody marginalized or multiple marginalized ways of being, um, sort of can interact with the genre and see it move beyond the scale of like narrative or story into the real world. I think it's Thomas King. What does he say? He says all we are is stories. The truth about
3: stories is that's all we are. Yeah,
1: the truth about stories is that's all we are. And so I, we see that, especially in this moment around the world with, um, in India, you have the anti-CAA, which is Anti-Citizenship Amendment Act protests going on. People are trying to redefine what it means to be a citizen of a democratic socialist republic um, in the face of rampant xenophobia, Islamophobia. And when those protests first started, um, the media just focused on the fact that they were burning buses, mm-hmm. instead of the fact that state-sponsored violence was enabling police, militarized police, to kill students at, across a lot of public institutions, to um, cut off people from supplies, everything that's going on in the disputed territory of Kashmir. Um, also now with Wet'suwet'en, the um, illegal RCMP, Uh, raids on their land just to build a pipeline Mm -hmm. so certain elites can find privilege out of this. Like, it's the narrative in Apocalypse aren't disconnected from the world, like you were saying. But um, before we move on to the Q&A portion of this episode, um, where our wonderful audience gets to ask you or us, hopefully just you, questions. (laughs) Um, I think we should all, by all I mean the four of us, um, end off by talking through a film, television show, a uh, story, uh, good or bad, that really made us think through certain tropes and ideas and how they relate to pop culture, society, and apocalypse. So do you want to start, T? Sure. sure.
3: So. <laughs> It's funny because um, you suggested you might ask something like this, and I like panicked. <laughs> Pick one. <laughs> I'm a pop culture person, and now I'm like I can't think of anything. Um, but I think I just I wanted to take the opportunity to like signal boost the work of N.K. Jensen. So the Broken Earth trilogy is this kind of like amazing, vaguely post-apocalyptic mm-hmm. world, right? Um, but, but like, like it's, it's just, it's so imaginative, it's so different, it's like racially diverse, it's gender diverse, it's like gender is, I don't even know what gender means in that world anymore, mm-hmm. right? Um, and, and it just like, that's the kind of imagining and thinking that I, like, if you haven't read the Broken Earth trilogy, I like, highly recommend it. Also, Jemison was the first black woman to win the Hugo Award for the first book, and then, and then, she wanted three years in a row, nice. one for each book. That's awesome. And I'm like, who does that? Yeah. Who, does, yeah. who gets a three P other than Golden State? But like, <laughs> yeah. but they didn't, did they? No, yeah. sorry. Anyway, think, th- think, th- think of the Lakers. <laughs> but I think like so. MG Jamison is just you know she, she the the Broken Earth trilogy is not her only book, obviously not her only set, but um, that's the one that was just one that I read and got. Oh my God, what is she doing? Mm-hmm. <laughs> pretty cool. Definitely, Definitely gonna, gonna
0: look into
2: that, that one. <laughs> <laughs> You wanna go? No, <laughs> yeah, is <yeah>, next. <laughs> Love that for me. Um, okay. Um, I think when it comes to horror specifically, which is probably a really basic answer, but not actually basic if you look at the um, well I'm pulling an Aquarius move right now. <laughs> Being like this is not actually basic because I'm different. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, um... (laughs) so annoying. Anyways, I was just gonna say that I think Jordan Peele was the first person to, like, really, like, pique my interest in horror. Yeah. Which, yeah, for me, I think, like, Tat mentioned, like we mentioned before, in horror, you always see, like, the black person, usually black male, like, getting killed off first, um, which is not, like, by accident, like, it's such a overly done trope and even to this day you think like they would get like move on from that but you see it all the time like Ari Aster did it in Midsummer, like we love to see it <laughs> but um, we actually don't um, <laughs> but yeah I really thought like Sav was mentioning it's really cool the way in which um, for me that was the first introduction to reshaping horror in yeah. this way or thriller whatever you want to define it as um, by centering like black families especially us really hit me um that movie freaked me out like the ending really scared me i was like (laughs) can't look (laughs) in mirrors i'm gonna get snatched like i was (laughs) was really scared um but i think it really he does a really good job at subtly yet still super impactfully illuminating all these structures at play um in ways that are really chilling Mm -hmm. But, like, it's not, again, like, not jump-scare necessarily or not, like, this really overt way of making you scared. It's, like, oh, really? Like, when you step back and you're reflecting, you're, like, oh, God. Like, that feels really possible. That feels really scary. Um, I don't necessarily see it happening in the sense of, like, I'm dating a white person. Their family has snatched my, like, friend's bodies. But you also see it in that sense of, like, the ways in which these structures could do this in this like really subtle way, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, I think he really started to illuminate that, and I, I think he kind of—I could be wrong because again, I don't know that much about the history of horror, but from my understanding, kind of kicked off that new like thinking through um, horror, and you see that like Sad mentioned like through *Parasite*, through all these other. Films that are coming up that aren't centering like white families, but are illuminating so much structural violence. Um so yeah, that was a long way to say, like Jordan Peele! <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, so that was definitely my shaping. The scene with film. the loops on the milk. Yeah, oh, like oh like I just it actually stressed me out. So much unsettling So unsettling uh, But yeah, anyways.
0: Um Yeah, like, apart from the Jordan Peele, like, movies, that definitely, like, I think those were the first movies that I even, like, went went to the the theaters to watch a horror film, like, Mm -hmm, it was the first time that I was like, hmm, like, maybe we'll see something, like, pretty interesting here, but, um, otherwise, like, I I recently just watched a new Birds of of Prey movie I was telling you earlier about, um, it's It's not not really an apocalypse apocalypse film, but but Gotham is pretty much set in, like, kind of an apocalyptic world where, um, like, it's, it definitely has those, like, themes of, like, that dog-eat-dog, dog, like, you have to do everything you can to survive, and everything, and, like, in this um, this new film, uh, there's a character, Black Canary, where she's, um, she's, she's kind of, like, she's caught, and you, you mentioned it in your book, too, like, talking about, um, how, um, like, the, the black femme character, or, like, black female, like, female character like, is always, like, at the hands of, like, the white patriarchal figure, like, and, like, doing things to like stabilize his um, presence. Right. And so watching the movie, I was just thinking like, I can see like, you, I could see like um, her her story, like her perspective like shining through because I've kind of related so much to parts of it. But I also can help with feeling like, again, like not enough is there, right? Like not enough is there, like I want to hear more about her story, like I want to hear more about you know, you know where she comes from. I want to hear more about like, like what, what she wants, wants to do, do in the world, and then, like I, I guess I that's like part of this question. question. Like, like I don't really I see myself, myself like or, like, or the, or the stories, stories that I want to see yet in, in these films, and like also in, in general, general, like like, like yeah, yeah, like culture,
3: but um, yeah, that's that's one. I, I love that. I like, just to like add on to what you just said. I love how you said I want to I want to know more about what she wants. Yeah, like that. I think. That's always my feeling. Is a kind of like I want to know more about what that character, mm-hmm. who has been stuck on the margins and stuck on the sidelines, what what they desire, yeah. mm-hmm. and, and
0: like what, what really resonated, resonated was like her reluctance to participate. To participate. Like right. she, she was, was so, so like, like not about like, like you know carrying around like, like orders like a, a henchman, henchman to, to her like, like white like, like boss, the right. guy, the crazy guy. But like, um, yeah, yeah like, that, that just stood out to me so much. So that, like she was so reluctant to like to participate. Like she wanted out.
3: Right. Interesting.
1: I was going going to say say Parasite Parasite because (laughs) it it was was really good. Me and Yasmin in silent theaters and I I think there were parts where like, what are we watching? This is like three different movies in one one, and every single single one was somehow not a horror movie movie, but terrifying at the same (laughs) time. And so the way that June did that was just incredible as a director and the actors were amazing. They should have been nominated and they should have won. But um, that's a podcast episode for another day. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I think... My answer is actually going to be um, Beloved by Toni Morrison. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I know it's not necessarily horror, but it also is. And what's that you... I always use this reading that you assigned. Who's the author? Avery um, Gordon? Yeah, Avery Gordon's reading about Beloved. I think it's called The Footsteps and the Water, too? Something like that. We will link it. book
3: called Ghostly Matters. Yeah,
1: and my memory fails me for the title, but I just... This idea of... Um, horror stories when they're done right and they're read right and they're looked at right they pose this something to be done
2: and so i think beloved does that
1: so beautifully in a way that i haven't been able to sort of walk away from yet um if i'm sure most people know the narrative of beloved it's such a popular work of literature by tony morrison but um, it's basically the story of this family This black family post, like very recently post the end of slavery, quote unquote, in the United States. And so the mother of that family, um, in her escape from her um, slave masters, she takes her three year old daughter, I think, and she ends up having, and she, like, when she almost gets caught in the escape, she murders her child in front of the The slave masters who are trying to recapture her. And so some years later, um, the ghost of this child comes back in the form of beloved. And it's just such a haunting and like just mournful and sort of almost like relentless sort of questioning of what the legacy of colonialism in the form of Chateau slavery is. Yeah, and so I think that would be my answer. It's
3: horrifying and beautiful. Yeah. But
2: um Okay.
0: So good answers, yeah. <laughs> 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 okay, anyway, yeah, so yeah, we had well, I had a great time
2: having this conversation. Yeah. Like, definitely super insightful. Love um hearing all of like you have to say. Um, okay, yeah, so we want to thank everyone uh, for those amazing questions, Ashley <laughs> Robin, shout out um, y'all. It's so cool to have as many voices as we have had throughout this episode um centered uh definitely a very novel and really fun experience for us um because we've never done a live recording so yeah but i honestly think this is the smoothest recording yeah <laughs> usually it's a lot it like it's, takes
1: a week yeah like it's a lot just complete chaos so i think the pressure of an shout audience, out to jeff from yeah. new college library yes, head jeff. librarian yes head yes. librarian at new college library um A saint. A saint, uh, skilled in all things tech. (laughs) Patron saint of (laughs) (laughs) podcasts. He's christened. Sorry, Catholic Church, we
2: beat you to it. Yeah, um, and we also want to thank again the Women and Gender Studies Course Union and the department for this opportunity and lovely event space. Um, Also, a big thank you to you guys, the live audience. here with us today we really enjoyed getting to share the space with you um and have you like listening which was really awesome um and of course a very big thank you to professor trimble um for being our guest on this episode and all of your wonderful and radical like Insights into popular culture horror and apocalypse and also for doing this like so last-minute like (laughs) We asked you like less than a month ago and like have this planned and rescheduled So we really appreciate that flexibility and just like being so welcoming to this Um, Just because yeah, like technically you only really knew SAV and so just building that trust was really awesome to do with you. So yeah, it's really grateful. pleasure.
0: Cool. Yeah. yeah, really cool. And um, so before you go, though, um, uh, can you please let us know about anything that you're working on, uh, anything new that you may be releasing, anything cool coming up that you're involved in, um, or even like upcoming book releases, talks, other publications that are related to it?
3: Um, yeah signal-boosting me, okay, um, I, so I wrote a piece on horror for The Wrong Magazine. Um, it's available online, if you just go to The Wrong Magazine online, you'll find it. Um, I think they called it Fear, Desire, Curiosity, um, but it's about why horror is sort of the genre for our times. Um, so I also have an upcoming lecture, like a public lecture that I'll be giving uh, April 29th. Um, it's through, there's a series called, did I write it down? It's a series called "It's a Black Museum: Lurid Lectures for the Morbidly Curious." Um, it's based on some old sort of museum that I think it's like 19th century England or something. I don't know, but anyway, it's um, it's a guest lecture for them on Guillermo del Toro's *Crimson Peak*. Ooh. So it'll be like a lecture plus a screening of the film at oh, the cool. Royal Cinema.
1: Nice.
3: Um, and and I've got the Bitch Media Writing Fellowship coming up. That's so. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> so we July to September of this year, I will be producing stuff for Bitch's like online platform, mm-hmm. and then something as well for their quarterly magazine, the actual like print magazine. Oh, that's and, awesome. that's and I'm gonna write so so some stuff on the MBA
1: for the first time.
3: <gasps> so I'm like pretty excited. Well, that's <laughs> really cool. Yeah. Congrats! We're so excited, as I'm
1: sure everybody who's in this room and listening is as well. Um, one big thank you again to everybody involved, especially you, T. Um, so you can pick up your copy of T's book, Undead Ends, as well as the collaborative work that T is featured in that was edited by Alison Mitchell and Caitlin McKinney, um, Inside, Killjoy Ca- Inside Killjoy's Castle, um, at Glad Day Bookstore in the Village, um, another story bookstore, and a different book list. You can also order these titles online from various independent suppliers, not from Amazon, because fuck Jeff Bezos. Don't do that if you've learned anything. Today, we hate billionaires.
3: Yeah, we hate. <laughs> um,
1: so, if you're interested in doing some more reading or research on some of the themes and concepts mentioned in today's podcast, we're gonna post a lot of the stuff that T talked about or that me, Tat, and Yaz mentioned in the description of this episode. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, you can find it if you wanna
2: find this um, on like any streaming. So like Apple or Spotify, Spotify or yada yada yada. We have some kind of algorithm thing that just puts it into the void. <laughs> <laughs> so hopefully whatever you use will be there. Um, also we have an Instagram so you can follow that if you don't want to like have. We'll post it there as well, uh, which is just spot on the couch. Yeah, yeah, spot, yeah. On couch. <laughs> spot on the couch. <laughs> um, yeah, so we're really happy to be back inside as If you didn't listen to us, but Probably didn't. (laughs) Um, We started in August and then did like three-ish episodes between then and October. And then life, like we said, got real busy. (laughs) And we kind of checked out. But now we're back and we have a couple of things scheduled for the upcoming, like, Few months um so hopefully we'll stay on top of that i don't know why i looked at you as <laughs>
1: like, we we
2: we
1: people don't know what's going on who are listening but like she just gave me like the meanest look like this is all my fault it really isn't though no, it's, it's so not collective <laughs> collective. <laughs> yeah. collective um but yeah uh
2: just yeah thanks again for everyone for listening we really appreciate um yeah having the space and being able to share this with you and if you guys ever like come up with any topics that
0: you might want to hear like from this perspective like let us know like send mm-hmm. us some DMs like mm-hmm. anything we'll check them yeah yeah
2: yeah yeah, All right. yeah. 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 thanks everyone